You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week we are continuing our series on life at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I'm going to be talking with Lana Hum and Mac Cole Edelsack of MoMA's Exhibition Design and Production Department. Uh, these are two people who are responsible for actually planning and executing the physical layout of the galleries that you see when you walk through the museum. You're looking at their handiwork every time you turn a corner and uh, notice where a painting is hung on a wall. Now, ordinarily, I don't talk to more than one person at a time on working. It's a intimate one-on-one interview. But I was told that if I really wanted to get a sense of how exhibitions are planned and put together at the museum, I needed to talk with both Lana and Mac. They're a duo, they work together, and I was going to get a much fuller sense of how they operate if I got them both in the room at one time. And so we actually ended up having, I think, a really fun conversation. We talked a lot about playing with models. I shouldn't say playing, working with models um, and nerding out on that kind of stuff and making replicas of the art and moving them around and how all that kind of factors into the process of conceiving and actually putting together an exhibition. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. What are your names and what do you do? My name is Lana Hum. I'm the director of exhibition design and production. My name is Mac Cole Edelsack. I'm senior design manager in the Department of Exhibition Design and Production. You guys in the end are two people responsible for getting these exhibitions up, that when you're walking through MoMA, you're mm-hmm. looking at the art on the walls mm-hmm. or the sculptures in the halls. You're the ones envisioning and uh, actually bringing that to fruition. That's that's the core of what you're here, what you guys do here, mm-hmm. right? I think I, the word envisioning is tough for me because really we're the ones bringing the vision of curators and the vision of living artists to life in many ways or into reality. So we're working with them to visualize but I would say the vision really, you know, comes from them. And then obviously in collaboration with ourselves and with our whole team, the evolution of the architecture, the hanging, the approach to complicated installations, the approach to simply how things look on the wall is very much collaborative. But in a perfect world, exhibition design is really should be the realization of this curatorial and artistic vision. And you mentioned your team. How how many people, what kinds of people do you have on your team? On our particular team, we have carpenters, we have electricians, we have lighting technicians, we have a frame shop, and we have painters. And we also have designers and production managers. So you've, it's almost like a little bit of stage design and then like an interior contracting crew combined all together. Correct. How did you guys each end up in this line of work? I grew up in New York City, and so I've always had a, a real fascination with museums. They've always made me feel at home. I, as a child growing up, I think the way I got connected into architecture, which is ultimately how I wound up in museum, was through museums. And that um, I always had this fantasy that I could live in a museum because um, <laughs> the mixed up files of Basil, Frank Weiler, is that the, am I blanking on the... That's the um, book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they sleep in the mat. Oh, yeah, right, right. Exactly. exactly. That's the... Exactly. And I, I think it's be, because um, they were just places where I just knew something important was happening. You know, as a kid growing up, I 
I didn't go to summer camp, and summers were really, really boring and really, really hot. So I, my sister would bring us to uh, libraries and to museums because they were accessible, and we could just go in, and it would be cool in there, and it just felt grand, and it just felt important, and I just always thought that I would want to work in a museum. And then you went to architecture as a... Then I went to architecture because I, I studied art, and, um, you know, I'm a child of immigrant parents. Parents, and they were really concerned that I would have a, a very, uh, like I would have a trade, a profession. Mm-hmm. So I went to architecture school. But you managed to combine the two eventually. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny. I also grew up in New York City and have very early memories of being at MoMA, being at the Met. I think my mom's been a member here going on 50 years. So similarly, having a kind of rooted connection to museums and institutions. But I also went to architecture school and at some point was working in architecture and really becoming disillusioned with architecture firms and the practice of architecture itself. And so I got an opportunity to do essentially the architecture for an art project. And that was the beginning of that kind of move into this direction. So I took that job and then it was the financial crisis. I got laid off. I moved back to New York. I was doing construction management. And then was lucky enough that a friend forwarded me the MoMA job hosting, and I met Lana, and that was that's that's. I, I remember I did. I was actually also sorry. Let me let me roll back. I was doing a number of art projects for about a year and a half in like two thousand nine, ten, and at some point, a lot of the projects we were doing ended up being exhibitions, exhibition design as art. And my partner in those projects said to me, dude, you should do exhibition design. And I was like, that's not a job. Because that just (laughs) seemed way cooler than anything I could hope to be paid for. And then it turned out I was wrong. (laughs) Very fortunately. Where do you guys start with an exhibition? When does it come into your office? An exhibition begins when it's been approved by a larger body of the ex- exhibition committee at the museum. And we like to start working with the curators at the very big, very conception of the idea of the exhibition. And when there's a few works that we know will already be in the, uh, in the exhibition, um, we like to, we like to be there in the beginning because it's not just a matter of like, installing the artworks and the logistics around installing the artwork, but it's really about imagining what environment that these works will be in. So we like to get out ahead of it so that we can kind of start modeling out many different solutions. Right. And for, you know, for every gallery, there's a half-inch scale model. And so as early as possible, we work with the curators to bring in a preliminary list of works that we make uh, what we call chips, which are half-inch scale maquettes of the artwork, to be deployed within the model. And we'll just often work with sort of temporary layouts and really work through flow and sequencing how the show is being organized. They usually have a very strong idea about that and then can develop it sort of live action in the model. When you say half-inch scale for someone who's not used to you know, architectural renderings or what, sure. what does that mean? Half inch in the yeah. model equals one foot in real life. Okay. So you're you're starting off as soon as you possibly can making one of these models to figure out this is what the thing might look like. Right. So we have the models of the galleries kind of blank already made. Mm-hmm. Frequently, we'll start with the model from the previous show because reusing walls and as much as we can is, you know, part of sustainability, but also just managing our workload. And then in the gallery also needs to work for the show. So, you know, rearranging walls, moving casework, things like that. And so you're also taking like little chips that are going to be, this is this Van Gogh masterpiece that might go on this wall, or it could go over here and here's where we put this sculpture. And you're kind of arranging them all around at that Correct. point. And we, and we do work with the curators on that. And we find that the, the model is a wonderful tool to do that because it's very tactile and that the curators feel like they, they can actually just like put their hands in it and physically move things around. And therefore they have like a greater command of where things can go and they can again quickly visualize solutions is that how that meeting actually goes you stand around with the curators and you guys kind of uh play like civilization absolutely with the- <laughs> yes, <laughs> everyone exactly. everyone gets their hands in there oh, exactly really? and it's mm. it's funny because like 
you know, you can move something so easily, like you can move like a wall really easily, <laughs> like, and you can tweak it to six inches. But in real life, like that's so much that's harder another... thing to achieve. So, yeah, wait, six inches. So you're just like, oh, I'll move that wall six feet. And, that's right. <laughs> and you're saying you're like, you just told my construction crew <laughs> to do. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Or like, you know, you can repair something very much more quickly. Like I remember taping together two walls together and thinking like how easy this seems, but like in real life, like that would be a really, really like a three-day project. Right. Do you ever have to stand there be like, hold up? Like, are you ever telling people like, to calm down about the moving? Or is yes. It, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because cause expectation, when you're playing with the model, expectations probably can get. Sure. And we've been working very collaboratively on some of the exhibitions. So there's more, there could be more than one curator on the show. And I've noticed that you'll go to the model and if one curator has been working there, it'll look a certain way. And then they'll, it's almost too easy to move all the walls because then you'll go the next day and the other curator kind of like moved it back to where they wanted it to be. Wait, so. that's really funny. Do they ever like do that without telling each other? Yes. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Just someone drops into the... It's the mice. <laughs> right. It must be the wind blew something. <laughs> Who actually builds the models? We have a wonderful carpentry shop. Yeah. Um, and we build the models in-house. Okay. So you guys, you, you guys say, this is what we want. You guys go do this. Correct. So, and we have building plans. Right. Again, there's – so the carpentry shop builds the base models mm -hmm. for all the galleries. And then we work with the curators to actually build out the model. Mm -hmm. So That's true. it may start with just standardized 10-foot walls and we're taping them together to make 20-foot walls. Talking about width here. And then eventually we'll make the kind of – we try to finish and finalize the model so that it becomes not so easy for the mice to change it in the middle of the night. And so that <laughs> Lots stuff, of tape. Yeah. That's stuff our designers do. But the actual sort of perimeter model that is the – The base model. The base model that, that is the gallery with no temporary walls in it are built in-house by the car. And for shop. every um, exhibition gallery that uh, – every temporary exhibition gallery, we have about two or three models yeah. so that we can work on several shows at once. And how big is one of these things? Are you talking about like something that fills a whole table or like how yes. – like yeah, that has on the scale, space. like a 15,000 square feet space will be about... Yeah, it's about six feet by feet. six feet yeah. or seven feet by seven yeah. feet. Okay, oh, so yeah. you've got like a real war game going at that point. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, and then actually the logistics of working in the model come into play. Like, depending on the designer and the curator, you may need stools around the table. Like, right. And these things actually become critical. For example, I was working on a show where... There was this middle room you just couldn't reach That's right. because the model is almost square. And we just never really laid out that room because no one could reach it. And then finally we had to build a separate little like miniature of just those walls so that we could lay out that right, room. That's when you get on top of the table and you have right. everybody like <laughs> – <laughs> reaching over the model. Those um, tongs seem like they would come in handy. Uh, yeah, there you go. Well, there you invented another tool. Uh, <laughs> One of those, like, grabby, those claws. Oh, those, yeah, like... the space hands. Yes. Yeah, I loved that when I was a kid. Or, like, it... a croupier has those, like, mm. long sticks where you, like, move the chips mm. over. There you go. We're Perfect. dealers now. We're yeah, designers slash dealers. <laughs> um, so... Oh, I actually did have yeah. something to say about also to jump off of what Mac was saying about that the designers build the model. Yeah. We also like to make the maquettes. We we mm -hmm. have uh, the designers make the maquettes and we have other staff that make the maquettes. But I love um, the process of making a maquette because I think it hey, helps you to understand. What's a maquette? A maquette is a, a small uh, version of the artwork itself. Oh, okay. So it's a model of the artwork. And we, for some reason, we call them chips at MoMA. I don't know where that language came from. One of these days we should kind of dig back into history and see how that evolved. But it kind of goes with the dealer thing. I was wondering if they played yeah. poker. <laughs> like they, they had a Matisse versus Picasso poker game. <laughs> and that's when we did a lot more flat um, mm -hmm. maquettes. And so right. maybe they looked like little cards or I don't know. So you make but those yourselves. We make that that um, ourselves. And um, is, is that something you're personally doing or also you're farming that out to the, the, the team? We, uh, I, I like to make them, but we do farm it out to okay. the team. Yeah. yeah, and I think it depends on the designer. Yeah. Um, and why do you guys make them? Like, what, what is there a, a specific reason why you like making them? I think it gets you more in touch with what the artwork actually is, and it can, keeps you connected to making things. And I think that's what's really except, ex exceptional about um, what we do. Yeah, I know for me, 
making all the chips for a show is how I learned the artwork much better than, you know, an 85-page PDF of the checklist, right? Like, we're, we're, we have the jobs we have because mostly we're architects and artists and we like to make things. And so, in some ways, just that, that kind of tactility of learning is important, whereas other departments live and die by that PDF of a checklist. And we carry it around and we make notes on it. But the way I sort of know all the artwork is through the making of the chips. And and so you also, you personally like to get in there and actually make the chips yourself. So now I'm curious about about this. I I, I love talking about these kinds of processes. What are you, like, what do they actually look like? I I, Because I was imagining like a little board with a piece of like a photo on it. But what are they really? I mean, I think it, that's part of the making of the chip is interpreting the, the how to best represent the work of art itself. And so you can use many different materials, especially with 3D objects. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you can be very literal about it, but you can also just um, show the massing of it. And we've had many conversations about how to how – to, there's different styles and methods of making chips. And I, I like that we also have interns in our department. And I like that perspective, like getting somebody in and just saying, like, how would you represent this piece in miniature? And what materials would you like to use? And you have, like, many, like, r- wonderful, surprising results. For instance, I love that a, it, it was a chair in our collection. And I'm, I'm not remembering what, exactly the name of the artist that produced the chair but the chair was made with a paper clip because it had like a chrome arm that was like like in an s curve chrome arm and mm-hmm. i thought that that was a wonderful way to evoke the chair how how elaborate do they ever get out of curiosity they get extremely <laughs> elaborate like what are we talking we're talking like full on like warhammer kind of stuff here sorry that well, was a I real think nerdy a f- reference but <laughs> i mean it's the most extreme in fact some shows have had chips that were farmed out yeah. and were literally miniature artworks for the show. I think for our department, actually the same. Like we've had interns who used modeling clay to mm-hmm. and paint to actually get as close as possible to a genuine miniature huh. of the piece. Some chips in looks that like, scale. look like origami, where they're mm-hmm. just paper and they're just about the way it's folded to make a three-dimensional object. Does anyone collect these things, like take them home or keep them on their desks? Oh, people, this is another where the mice come in again. They walk away. <laughs> they just disappear. Like, <laughs> I think we have a lot of mice in the model mm. room because like, things keep changing. But they do. They disappear. And the, the carpenters have made some really beautiful chips as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I love the interpretation of the object via the chip making. It's it's There could be many ways to, uh, to evoke it. We also, yeah. we do so many shows that at a certain point I think this we lose a little bit of the sentimentality. So yeah. uh, it may be that yeah, I, I, I think I think it, early but, on yeah. early on I was like keeping chips and yeah. I feel like now it's like wipe we gotta wipe the model clean and That's get the new true. one going. But you know, there's always an email that goes out, does anyone want any of these before we throw them all away? Right. That's, I think my office looks the craziest because I have the most sentimentality towards what, chips. So what? I have like all sorts of random artworks just scattered. all over <laughs> yes. it's just like all like all the little monets and miniature just floating around is it i do have some things in miniature floating around i don't know if i have the the monet but i also have full-size maquettes of a picasso sculpture show that we did so we we made some full-size maquettes yeah and that's an interesting process and usually we just kind of do the silhouette but um what do you do with the full-sized ones? What are the because those are those are not going to go in the model, are they? No. So those are for full-size mock-ups. So mm-hmm. um, in cases where we have a, a a gallery in transition, we can actually model out an installation to give the curators an opportunity to move maquettes around instead of the actual objects because okay. s- some objects are so. Well, they're they're not. You don't want to move the thirty million dollar Picasso right. if you can avoid it. We want to minimize, yeah, the the kind of wear and tear on on an object by moving it around. How big do the full size models get? Like, how what's the largest you ever do? We did a full size maquette of Broken Obelisk, which is how many feet is that? Twenty oh at God. least. Yeah, we did. We did. It was. Yeah, we did. That's wild. That was. Yeah, that's- that's really, really tall. Is it? And the it's, base is what ten feet. It's a ten foot pyramid. That's right. It's ten foot. So I think it's at least it's it, it's lo, it's less than sixty feet because that's the height of right, the atrium. Right. So it's maybe about did forty it go feet. Past the, yeah, it went past the soffit. It went past the soffit so, yeah, for sure. Like it's 40, about a, yeah. maybe about forty feet. Yeah. So you did a, so. a forty by ten foot obelisk 
that you you built that and moved that around rather we than made it out of cardboard. Yeah, <laughs> actually, and I think that we I I I think after the mock-up was over, we discovered that maybe like four of us could fit inside that cardboard <laughs> pyramid. That's, That's awesome. It's sort of like a sequoia or something, like where you're inside yes. a tree. You also there are moments where. We even will work with conservation on whether it's a full-scale mock-up or, or a full-scale maquette or even on the chip. We actually can discover things about a work. So there's a work in our architecture collection that is really complicated to assemble, and the installation instructions, while beautiful, are a little hard to decipher. And so actually in making the chip, that became how now the registrar keeps track of how to install, like how to build up that piece. So a lot's riding on that model when you're yes. – So how many variations do you go through when you're coming up with the layout? It really depends. I mean, I there are shows where we've probably gone into like 20 or 30 mm-hmm. versions of a floor plan. And some of that is working very quickly in CAD and showing ideas to the curator because obviously – rebuilding them or building out the model Mm -hmm. with each layout and redeploying the artwork can become onerous, but you can kind of quickly look at some layouts if you're thinking through certain spatial propositions. And CAD is, is that like, is that a computer program or? Sorry, AutoCAD, yeah. Okay, great. So So AutoCAD is our computer-aided drafting program. Is that what you guys use when you're like first, like you do that and then you go to the physical model usually, or is it both? I would say we actually frequently start with the physical model. Mm -hmm. And then if if it seems like we actually have to work through a number of variations to show the curator kind of what these ideas mean in space, that's where you might get into drafting early on. I see. And then once you're sort of finalized on the layout, then you really have to produce construction drawings and installation plans for the show before it actually goes into production. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm still intrigued by this process where the curators and, and you guys are kind of hashing out what it's going to look like. Are there any common points of tension? Like, is there a sort of thing that a curator always asks for or wants in a physical layout where you guys are like, that's that's hard to do or that takes more than you realize? I can think of a couple of things. I think um, changes to our existing space. We, we like to build up as much as we can and make things possible, but there are some things that the curators ask for that actually mean changing our the, the envelope of our building. Can you give um, me an example of something? Sure. I mean, I can give you an example of something we accommodated. Okay, and yeah. um, we have a piece in our collection that requires that a, a hole is a, a Robert Gober piece, and it requires that a, a hole is cored through our structural slab of our building. So that would mean reinforcing the structure so that we could put a hole in the middle of a structural slab. What is this piece that you have to drill a hole in the, the it's, rock it's of actually, your building? For? It's actually coring out like a, a whole piece of the slab. So I, I would say like what, what was about 30 inches by roughly like 30 by 30, maybe even about a little bigger. the size bigger. of a briefcase or is this right, a sculpture? The size of a briefcase. <laughs> is it a sculpture? It's a sculpture. Or, okay, yeah. It's a sculpture. And um, it requires that um, you look through the piece you look through the hole, yeah. and underneath the hole is like a an aquatic world. It's like a tidal pool. So basically, we had to core out the hole in the structural slab, reinforce that slab, and then we had to um, build up the tidal pool to go up against the, the underside of the slab. You know, of course, we're um, a building that has to consider what's underneath that slab, and it wasn't gallery space that we could take offline. It was the retail store. So we had to work with the <laughs> retail store to do the work and to to make oh actually that was another piece there in mm-hmm. retail we had the hole for another piece the they're all they're untitled but it's the, the matthew that... marks piece that had the the fountain yeah. um but the thankfully the tidal pool lived in a hall where the staff would only populate that hallway so the in order to make this ex- exhibition work 
you had to cut out a piece of your building, a structural piece of your building, put essentially an aquarium underneath Correct. it. And then have that kind of dangling above the... Correct. We built a <laughs> scaffold up so that it was supported, but yeah, yeah and have it in a, a corridor that normally staff would traffic through. Yeah. So, so and, you're doing and, construction. Yeah, real construction. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, not just yeah. like interior design kind of stuff, but like actually like, oh no, structural stuff. Yeah. And something like that, interestingly, you can only, I think, Lana was a designer on that show, so can speak to this better, but like there were only a few places we could do That's that, correct. right? Right. So we did work with realistic expectations. I mean, like we did try to um, locate the piece, and the and, and Robert Gobert was just the most wonderful person to work with, and understood that that would be um, what we had to consider. So we couldn't just put it anywhere on the floor. That, that's interesting, though. So that that kind of implies to me that sometimes these sort of architectural or design considerations actually will determine the flow of how people see the art and like the order in which you can present mm-hmm. things. Because it's like, well, this can only go if you're sure. doing if it's not just paintings. It's like, well, this can only go in one room or mm-hmm. something along those right. lines. Are there any other kind of examples like that where you just have like a big piece that, you know, it's like, well, this has to go some this has to go here. There's no other. Yeah. I mean, we have certain rigging points in the ceiling that are designed to take a certain weight. So if, for example, you're going to hang something in a show that's extremely heavy, that's kind of predetermined. Uh, I'm trying to think of. There are ceiling height requirements. So not all the works that we Receive that we have on loans or have in our collection can fit in all the galleries. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even I'm thinking with Robert Rauschenberg, a piece called Mud Muse, mm-hmm. which for the first three or four months working on the show, we had just always assumed was going to be in one space. And then after looking at it with security, visitor engagement, we have this kind of big model meeting, just reviewing the logistics and the planning for visitor flow, et cetera. It became really clear it should be somewhere else. And what was that piece? What that was, was called Mud Muse. What did it look like? Or It's a large, funnily enough, it's also kind of a terrarium, but it's open at the top and it's filled with bentonite clay. Ah. And then it has a series of pumps within it that are connected to a reel-to-reel, which is programmed with the recording, actually, of this piece originally installed. Oh, this is the, like, it looks like a mud pit. A tar yeah, it pit, looks like bubbling. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. I remember, I'm now remembering seeing this thing. It looks like something a dinosaur might fall into and never get out of. Um, it's very large. <laughs> or an art handler. <laughs> or an art handler. <laughs> was that a danger? Did, was, did anyone no. almost fall into the mud pit? No. <laughs> no, that was, that was really smooth. <laughs> That's... Um, so you have so you do have these space considerations. You have to figure out how where things can actually go. So you you go through. You said sometimes it's made twenty, thirty iterations. How long does it take to usually model out something like this, or to model out an exhibition? I would say our most common timeline on a special exhibition is two years. Mm-hmm. And so we come in working very early on. You know, with those preliminary layouts, it's kind of very open at the beginning, and then hopefully within a couple months of working on the model, you've gotten it down to a pretty clear basic idea and you're working through maybe slight adjustments in room size and you're working with very real specifications on the artwork. One of the things that happens is with a show where there are a lot of works coming in, we may find out details about the artwork later in the process than we might like and so have to make adjustments. You know, after we've sort of committed to an Uh, a layout, you may have to say, oh, this piece actually, you know, the original owner measured it wrong and it is twice as big as we thought or something like that. And I guess I should ask, when when you are doing this layout, like philosophically, what are you usually trying to accomplish? Is it just like the curator has a vision for how they want to present the art and you want to get as close to that as possible? Or what, what what's like there's a story they want to tell and you're facilitating or is there something else going on there too? I like to think of ourselves less as designers than translators. And I think it is that we take our cues um, from the thesis of the show, which the curators have that vision. I think they have that vision. They have the scholarship. So I think um, when I talk to people about what it is I do, like sometimes I think the most important quality is just being a good listener. Like the most, like the, the one characteristic I think that serves me well as a designer is that I listen and that I, I want to, um, I'm, I'm listening because I think what we do is we take these ideas that are not necessarily ours, but we, we help to give it form. 
So we are really paying attention to the vision uh, that the curator sets. I think that's extremely well said. I I was just going to say specifically one of the most common things we have to balance is there's almost always a desire for an open feeling in the galleries and also frequently a desire for discrete areas to follow either a chronology or a thematic development through, say, an artist's work. And so frequently it's, it is about listening and hearing where those ideas actually are working well together and where they're not and trying to, you know, re- and use the model really to show how we can make an adjustment here to get to this place that feels like a balance between those kind of ideas. And I think another part part of what we do is helping people visualize. And that's where the models is great language because everyone can relate to a model. Whereas like we have done other things, like for instance, Mac brought up um, using AutoCAD. Like not everybody can relate to a floor plan the way like Mac and I can relate to a floor plan. And not everybody can relate to an elevation or um, or even a rendering. Uh, the model seems to be this very like wonderful like that everybody can uh, first of all everyone loves things in miniature (laughs) so that's like immediate connection they're like oh this is great this is like a moma dollhouse exactly a moma dollhouse or this like world that i can just kind of control and move around and um so um yeah so i i think that that's a great way to kind of get people involved in the show is via the model you brought up an interesting point, though, that I've never really thought about. But you said that you're striving to keep these spaces open, but at the same time, actually guide people. So it sounds like, at the one hand, you don't want everyone feeling like they're being sort of, you know, pushed through a tunnel to get Mm. to a certain place. You want them to be able to run around. But you can't also just have, like, free-range visitors just kind of going any which way, or they won't understand what's going on. So it seems like that's kind of part of the tension. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want people to feel forced through it. It's almost like you want that kind of, I I think I'm meandering, but I'm really like getting this like very chronological, like specific story. It's like you want to gently hold their hand sort of as they go through. Yes. Once you've gotten past the modeling and the um, curators going behind each other's backs, spy versus spy style and playing playing around with it, what, what comes next? Where do you go from there? So we we start logistical planning for the shows. We like Max said, we have to at some point we have to have a, a moment where we're not modeling out solutions anymore and that the model becomes fixed and that we start to make construction documents and we start communicating to our uh, to the building crews what what we have to do to get the show accomplished. And depending on the curator, the model may be used as a reference and with an understanding that those works will end up in that room, but very likely will be rearranged in an exact manner on the wall during installation. And some curators want to get those elevations dialed in perfectly so that the show can almost be hung automatically. It's never hung automatically, but there's a huge variety from show to show with how that final installation compares with the final model or the final installation plan. And why is there so much variation on that? I think it's style and also some things you just can't see until you, you know, you're working with these, with photographs of the artwork in miniature. Mm -hmm. And then the artwork shows up and it turns out it's far more beautiful than the photo was and needs to have its own wall. Or it turns out that these two works just don't look right together when they're lit properly and they're on the wall. And so they need to be separated or they need to be brought together. Sure. And those conditions of the site sometimes that are unexpected, like maybe there's reflection off other works or maybe a piece is particularly um, has like a light quality to it that you didn't expect. It's throwing off light onto other works. So there is there are unexpected things. So you want to leave enough flexibility so that when the arts when the artwork arrives on the floor that we're we're really giving it the proper environment. Who is making that call? Is that you guys when it's showing up and you're saying, actually, this this painting needs its whole wall to itself? That's curatorial. That's curatorial. So that's more stress for you guys to then plan around. We're pretty well planned for that. So in a show that recently went up, there was, we got to the floor, we had a model, we had an installation plan, but we also understood that So Black Pope is – this is for the Charles White retrospective. Black Pope is on one wall, and we knew that was going to go there. And the backside of it, we had a strong idea about what would go on the backside, but we also knew that the curator wanted to try two or three different things. And so 
we're fortunate to have enough of an installation period where we can do that without everyone losing their minds. So built into our installation period is testing and trying things out and, you know, moving things around on the floor, leaning them against the wall, seeing what works well together, what doesn't. And this is where all the other players that I mentioned earlier come into play, because we also have a lot of in-house resources. So, for instance, if a work comes in and it has a, it's framed a little differently than we had thought or we didn't have enough documentation of the frame, it's as, actually something we can consider when it arrives. We have a frame shop and they can they can make a new frame for it. They can make it even more beautiful. When you guys are in this period where you finalize things and you've started installing, what are you actually doing individually? Like, are you tell are you kind of delegating work? Are you going into the galleries and doing stuff? How what what are your roles at that point? I think that's where we switch into production mode and mm-hmm. we're production managers. And so we are orchestrating the what needs to happen for the ultimate display of the piece. Yeah. In a perfect world. Uh, once we've gotten through deinstallation of the previous show and then construction for the current galleries, and then we're into art installation, in a perfect world, our department really doesn't have much to do other than lighting. But in reality, if a video needs to move, if uh, it turns out power, you know, a piece requires power that we didn't know or the piece that requires power has to move for various reasons and the power needs to be rerun, we're there to really manage the production of those changes during the installation. Meanwhile, there's an art handling and preparation team that is really focused on moving the artwork, hanging the artwork, working with the curators to arrange the artwork. And then depending on the curators, their desire to collaborate with us during installation is just kind of personal choice. Construction. You guys have to disassemble the old, I guess, uh, show, whatever was in the room before, and then build out the new space. How does that process unfold? Where does that begin and how do you guys get going on that? After the previous show has been deinstalled and all the artwork is off the floor, the first step is usually demolition. So whether that's selective demolition or complete demolition, our carpenters come in, remove the sheetrock, remove the studs. We have now most of the galleries, we have a system worked out where we're able to, well, actually all the galleries, we're able to reuse our metal studs. And then we're able to get the sheetrock out in a much more orderly fashion than, say, six years ago. So once everything that's going to be removed is removed, and this also includes getting any casework that was on the walls, off the walls, the layout happens. So that's done normal, you know, red chalk lines on the floor. Sometimes we will actually have curators come in and see the layout before we actually start putting the walls up. And then and then we get into construction. Are there... Any are typically like last minute requests at that point, or does anyone ever look at the walls and put up and go, "Oh, this is this is all wrong"? <laughs> we we try to be flexible enough to make those changes, but we also try to limit it because one a small change will have like a ripple effect, and that could just like ripple through the whole exhibition, and it can you know what seems like a small ask could actually turn into ha- to have a big impact. Right. And and also because the the plans for the exhibitions are filed for changes in public assembly with the FDNY and with the Department of Buildings, there are only so many changes that can be accommodated. But we do understand going in, say, let's say we're going into a show where we know the exact placement of this wall that's going to have this work just has to be decided in the space by the curators. We'll plan for that. And so we'll have laid out the other walls and they'll come in and we'll say have studs on sawhorses and we'll maybe move those around so they can get the exact placement of one or two of those walls. But we're pretty precise about what that is going to be before we hit the floor. It's not just like, oh, this looks okay, but let's move everything. That's right. And by this time, we've been working with the curators very closely. So we know where there might be insecurity about something. Like we know like what what decisions like we all love and know for sure, but we... Um, we know where we would like to model something out a little more closely, like in the space. That, that's interesting that you said that it has to be approved by the FDNY. I guess they have to make sure that you're not building a fire trap, right? Or what, what are they approving exactly? Yeah, it's it's mostly the uh, it's making sure the egress is maintained, all the rules around egress. So the building is filed with a base public assembly plan, but that base plan is actually with all of the galleries open as they were originally shown on the architectural plans. And so when we build temporary partitions, et cetera, that has to be filed and 
we have to work with our architect of record to actually draw those egress plans and make sure, as you say, we haven't made and a trap. Egress is meaning how you get out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, how the hell you, how you get the hell out of it <laughs> if there's <Yes>. a disaster. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can't play around too much because there's a regulatory aspect of it. That means you have to kind of keep within the basic outlines of what you gave the city. Correct. Okay. Aside from the kind of aquarium we talked about earlier. What's what's another example of a architectural challenge you guys run into or a uh, construction challenge? It's tough in hindsight because our teams are so good that it's hard to remember what was hard, even though I know we've done incredible things that were seemed really daunting beforehand and were certainly a little harrowing in process. But you look back, I'm thinking of For example, what it's like, what it is, number three, which is a piece by Adrian Piper that we recently acquired and installed in the atrium. Going into it, it seemed like it was going to be this incredibly challenging thing. It's a freestanding room in the middle of the atrium with bleacher seating, AV, a kind of AV tower in the middle, mirror, flooring, coordination of a number of trades, et cetera. And then, you know, we went in with a plan and our carpenters and our painters and our AV techs and our lighting mechanics are just so good. That I look back and I'm like, boy, it, I think that went really smoothly. And I know there were challenges, but, you know, building a building in the middle of the atrium is yeah. a pretty big challenge. And we seem to pull And you it worked off. out some things um, like how to maintain the top of the piece because the atrium is this vast high ceiling space and as such it does tend to gather a lot of dust in that area. So there was like a a creative plan for how to keep all the dust off the roof of the piece. So there were there were some challenges that that and and it was very well planned too. But yeah, I think I think we do it's just every show we've mentioned has had I mean I think Robert Gober, the coring of the floor, but th- that was I just also, two elements. There was a, also a building in the atrium for that. There I was also, also a, want to mention Tanya Bruguera, which yeah. another designer on our team worked on, uh, Matthew Cox. And that w- was a tremendous challenge in interpretation as well as in construction. So the Tanya Bruguera is an artist that did a performance in uh, Havana, Cuba. And this was a recreation of the space in which she did the performance. Um, however, where she did the performance was in the tunnels, underground tunnels of a fortress, an old prison fortress. So uh, Matthew worked with her so that she could evoke the qualities of the space without literally recreating like an underground cement tunnel. That would be um, a lot. Yes, that would be a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, building our, a catacomb would be a bit, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that was a real construction challenge, and um, to kind of figure out a um, kind of a lightweight solution to recreating this like weighty structure of like a catacomb, like you say. And there there was a lot of creative thinking around that. So I would, both in what the structure would be mm-hmm. and also what the finish would be. What did you guys end up going with instead of a full cement tunnel structure? I think Matthew was really creative and he found um, a Kwanzaa hut structure, you know, th- like these huge shed structures um, uh, out of prefabricated metal. And um, there are these ribs that get fixed, attached together to form like a long tunnel. And and then our own painters um, invented like a cement mix and came up with something that would both be quick drying, but would still, you know, evoke the texture and the the temperature and the, the coolness and uh, of the underground tunnel. It seems like a lot of this process is also just dealing with drywall. Like that's... <laughs> Like, I mean, I hung drywall for a job like one year after that. Like, is that like a is drywall just like the bane of your guys' existence? Or is it just like figuring, like I'm just thinking about all like the disposal rules and like the dumpster stuff. Is that just like a irritating thing you all have to deal with, or is it just not something you think about much? I wouldn't call it irritating. It is certainly dealing with drywall could be the subtitle of our <laughs> you know of the middle zone of our production period. Uh, <laughs> Once you've actually got the space built. I guess, are there any other parts of building the space that like someone wouldn't think about or that are usually, that are oh, kind of important? sure. Yeah. There's running power for AV. If we have monitors embedded in walls, if we have cases embedded in walls, if uh, 
Some artworks require plywood backing or some kind of other special weight. reinforcement for the weight. Uh, some artworks require a cavity cut in a wall or some other architectural modification that all should be done, obviously, before artwork shows up on the floor. Because once artwork's on the floor, any work that creates dust becomes much, much more problematic. And so we really are trying to get anything that creates dust or any kind of mess done before artwork shows up on the floor. Yeah, you can't have the Van Gogh covered in dust. That's the Otherwise, that's it's going to be a lot of work for conservation. Right. <laughs> and so you, you get all that kind of stuff done, and then you get to the hanging portion we were kind of talking about before, where you're actually figuring out where stuff is going to go. How long do you guys spend on that part of it? Two weeks. Mm -hmm. So about, well, it depends on the size of the space. Mm -hmm. So typically, two weeks is typical for a 10,000 square foot space. We tried to give a little bit more for the our larger spaces. And at that point, are you guys just kind of like, you, you guys are directing art handlers or art hangers? What are you doing then? This goes back to it really is the curators directing mm -hmm. what's happening and working with registrars and working with art handlers to come up. We've already got a sequencing, mm -hmm. right? So the registrars have, registrars have created an installation plan based on the courier schedule and any kind of like particular sequencing, maybe the curator's traveling for one day. So we've, you know, they're really thinking through an installation plan. And then depending on the curator, they may want us there looking at things with them. They may say, yeah, I got this room. Like, we, you know, we're fine. Just come back to light at the end of the day or come back, you know, let's talk in the morning and sometimes it's, you know, every piece, they really are working with us. How many, and once that process is done, is there anything left? Or once the art is hung, is that when you guys just move on to the next thing? We're, we're usually on to the next thing already. We work on several shows. I was just say how many, that was my next question, is how many, are, how many of these projects do you have going at once typically? I would say we could have as many as five projects going on at once, like in different in phases, in different phases. So whereas we'll be installing in the installation period or the construction period of one project, we'll be starting the planning for another project. Um, um, and then they'll be, they'll just be in various phases. I mean, there are times also where, you know, one designer is, in installation or in construction in two different shows at the same time. Uh, but that's usually, that's that's an unusual condition. That's true, yeah. And of course, we work very closely as a team. So we do try to back each other up. If someone has to travel for a show on one day, then we would have somebody else come in and, you know, mind the project while it's in installation. What counts as an emergency? In your guys' jobs, huh. mm. I guess that's relative, right? It's a relative <laughs> term. So the anxiety of somebody uh, of an artist could be an emergency. I mean, I think that's a really valid emergency because we want to make sure everybody knows that we're committed to getting everything right about the installation. We're committed to to excellence. We really are. So that could be, you know, an, an emergency. When you say the anxiety of an artist, what what do you mean by that exactly? If something isn't happening exactly as he or she anticipated, we do want to get it right. And as they much, can be picky. Oh, <laughs> that's yes, yes. I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. They can be picky, of course, but we understand that. And I and I think that another part of what the what's kind of. Ex really exceptional about our crews and I, I can't say enough about the people that we work with is among us many of us are artists and so they understand that this is important that everything that the artist asks us to do there's a reason for it there's meaning behind it is there a particularly picky thing that you can talk about an example of something that would maybe illustrate <laughs> the sort of request that might come hmm I'm going to have to think about this one. Oh, um, we got time. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think about emergency. Uh, I know we've had them. Yeah, I have to, I, I would say often, in my experience, estates and can be almost more picky because they're safeguarding 
the legacy of someone no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And so frequently where a living artist might be flexible on something, uh, a direct relative or an estate managing Mm -hmm. that artist's legacy may be much less willing to budge on something. And so... Because you know, it's not like you can ask the artist right. if this is acceptable or what's the, the, the right thing to do in this case. Is it like an example they don't like where something is being presented in the in the room or what kind of thing might an estate get angry about? Yeah, I mean, I had I remember there was a show where I spent two weeks being told that a wall was too tall until toward the end they, were, they decided it wasn't. Like and just too, that wall was too big? So we, it was a it was a wall that didn't <laughs> it's a yeah, wall. it was a wall that didn't go all the way to the ceiling. Okay. And obviously lowering that would constitute a major piece of work after art is already on the floor. So we would really like to avoid it. It's something that I mean again because of the people we work with we can do almost anything, but it also was not the right place to put priority. And we had a you, lot of other things to do at that time. And, and you so told we talked, me you want to avoid dust. Is kind yeah, of we nice. talked and we said, look, I understand you want this. I have to get these other things done. We can, you know, let's look at it when things lighten up, et cetera. And by the end, they were, you know, at that point, they had lived with it for a week and a half. And they thought, oh, yeah, no, I get it. It looks great. You spent two weeks trying to tell them, no, you don't have to cut the wall in half. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can say that. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now the question I'm asking everyone at the end of these interviews what is your favorite thing in MoMA? It could be a piece of art. It can be a part of the building. Sculpture garden, hands down. Also sculpture garden. Yeah. I've gotten that one before. Yeah. It's just the, one of the most special places, I think, not only in the museum, but in all of New York City. It's just an, it's an extreme privilege to, to be around it every day. I can't offer a better physical example than that. I think non-physical, and I imagine this would be echoed by almost everyone we work with, would be the people we work with. I To work in a building with 800 employees and like everyone and get along and feel like everyone's very committed to the same thing and the same ideas, and whether... We're arguing about ideas or not. There's a real feeling here that we're kind of in it together from all departments and all kinds of specialties, et cetera. This has been fun chatting. Thank you for taking the time to come by. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please, as always, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts and... If you have questions or comments or thoughts, please email me at working at slate.com. I've already gotten like two or three really great ideas for future seasons from listeners, so please keep emailing them in. I really am seriously talking about some of the things you were throwing my way with the higher ups here at Slate because you guys have as good ideas as I do sometimes. Probably better. Anyway, Working is produced by Jessamine Molly, without whom I would be totally lost on putting the show together. And as always, a thank you to uh, Justin D. Wright for the ad music. See you next time.